Section thirty four of Italian Hours by Henry James. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Other Tuscan Cities, Part Two. If undeveloped communications were to become enough for me at those retrospective moments, I might have felt myself supplied to my taste. Let me go on to say that the hour of my making with great resolution an attempt on high-seated and quite grandly out of the way volterra a reminiscence associated with quite a different year and i should perhaps sooner have bethought myself with my fond experience at pisa inasmuch as it was during a pause under that bland and motionless wing that i seemed to have had to organise in the darkness of a summer dawn my approach to the old Etruscan stronghold. The railway then existed, but I rose in the dim small hours to take my train. Moreover, so far as that might too much savour of an incongruous facility, the fault was in due course quite adequately repaired by an apparent repudiation of any awareness of such false notes on the part of the town i may not invite the reader to penetrate with me by so much as a step the boundless backward reach of history to which the more massive of the etruscan gates of volterra the porta al arco forms the solidest of thresholds since i perforce take no step myself and am even exceptionally condemned here to impressionism unashamed my errand was to spend a Sunday with an Italian friend, a native, in fact, of the place, master of a house there in which he offered me hospitality, who also, arriving from Florence the night before, had obligingly come on with me from Pisa, and whose consciousness of a due urbanity, already rather overstrained and still well before noon, by the accumulation of our matutinal vicissitudes and other grounds for patience, met all ruefully at the station the supreme shock of an apparently great, desolate world of volcanic hills, of blank, though engineered undulations, as the emergence of a road testified, unmitigated by the smallest sign of a wheeled vehicle. The station, in other words, looked out at that time, and I dare say the case hasn't strikingly altered, on a mere bare huge hill country, by some remote mighty shoulder of which the gold of our pilgrimage, so questionably served by the railway, was hidden from view, served as well by a belated omnibus, a foreign hand of lame and lamentable quality, the place, I hasten to add, eventually put forth some show of being, after a complete practical recognition of which, let me at once further mention all the other, the positive and sublime, connections of Volterra established themselves for me without my lifting a finger. The small, shrunken, but still lordly prehistoric city is perched when once you have rather painfully zigzagged within sight of it, very much as an eagle's eyrie oversweeping the land and the sea, and to that type of position the ideal of the airy peak of vantage with 
all accessories and minor features, a drop, a slide and a giddiness, its individual items and elements strike you at first as instinctively conforming. This impression was doubtless after a little modified for me. There were levels, there were small, stony, practicable streets, there were walks and strolls outside the gates and round about the Cyclopean wall to the far end of downward-tending protrusions and promontories, natural buttresses and pleasant terrene headlands, friendly suburban spots, one would call them, if the word had less detestable references, where games of bowls and over-trellised wine-tables could put in their note. In spite of which, however, my friend's little house of hospitality, clean and charming, and oh, so immemorially Tuscan, was as perpendicular and ladder-like as so compact a residence could be. It kept up for me beautifully, as regards posture and air, though humanly and socially it rather cooed like a dovecot, the illusion of the vertiginously balanced eagle's nest. The air, in truth, all the rest of that splendid day must have been the key to the promptly produced intensity of one's relation to every aspect of the charming episode. The light, cool, keen air of those delightful high places in Italy that tonically correct the ardours of July, and which, at our actual altitude, could but affect me as the very breath of the grand local legend. I might have had the little house, our particular eagle's nest for the summer, and even on such touching terms, and I well remember the force of the temptation to take it, if only other complications had permitted to spend the series of weeks with that admirable, interesting freshness in my lungs. Interesting, I especially note, as the strong appropriate medium in which a continuity with the irrecoverable but still effective past had been so robustly preserved. I couldn't yield, alas, to the conceived felicity, which had half a dozen appealing aspects. I could only, while thus feeling how the atmospheric medium itself made for a positively initiative exhilaration, enjoy my illusion till the morrow. The exhilaration, therefore, supplies to memory the whole light in which for the too brief time I went about seeing Volterra, so that my glance at the seated splendour reduces itself, as I've said, to the merest impressionism. Nothing more was to be looked for on this stretched surface of consciousness from one breezy wash of the brush. I find there the clean, strong image simplified to the three or four unforgettable particulars of the vast rake of the view. With the Maremma, of evil fame more or less immediately below, but with those islands of the sea, Corsica and Elba, the names of which are sharply associational beyond any others, dressing the far horizon in the grand manner, and the Ligurian coastline melting northward into beauty and history galore, with colossal uncemented blocks of Etruscan gates and walls plunging you, and by their very interest, into a sweet surrender of any privilege of appreciation more crushing than your general synthetic stare. And with the rich and perfectly arranged museum, 
an unsurpassed exhibition of monumental treasure from Etruscan tombs, funereal urns mainly, reliquies, offering an infinite power to move and charm us still, contributing to this same, so designed, but somehow at the same time so inspired, collapse of the historic imagination under too heavy a pressure or abeyance of private judgment into unequal a relation. Four. I remember recovering private judgment indeed in the course of two or three days following the excursion I have just noted, which must have shaped themselves in some sort of consonance with the idea that as we were hereabouts in the very middle of dim Etruria, a common self-respect prescribed us somehow profiting by the fact. This kindled in us the spirit of exploration, but with the results of which I here attempt to record so utterly does the whole impression swoon away for present memory into vagueness, confusion and intolerable heat. Our self-respect was of the common order, but the blaze of the July sun was even for Tuscany of the uncommon, so that the project of a trudging quest for Etruscan tombs in shadeless wastes yielded to its own temerity. There comes back to me nevertheless at the same time, from the mild misadventure, and quite as through this positive humility of failure, the sense of a supremely intimate revelation of Italy in undress, so to speak, the state it seemed in which one could most fondly, most ideally enjoy her. Italy no longer in winter starch and sobriety, with winter manners and winter prices and winter excuses, all addressed to the forestieri and the Philistines, but lolling at her length, with her graces all relaxed and thereby only the more natural. The brilliant performer, in short, en famille. The curtain down, and her salary stopped for the season, thanks to which she is by so much more the easy genius and the good creature as she is, by so much less the advertised prima donna. She received us nowhere more sympathetically, that is, with less ceremony or self-consciousness, I seem to recall, than at Monte Pulciano, for instance, where it was indeed that the recovery of private judgment I just referred to couldn't help taking place. What we were doing, or what we expected to do at Monte Pulciano, I keep no other trace of than is bound up in a present, quite tender consciousness that I wouldn't for the world not have been there. I think my reason must have been largely just in the beauty of the name, for could any beauty be greater, reinforced, no doubt, by the fame of the local vintage, and the sense of how we should quaff it on the spot. Perhaps we quaffed it too constantly, since the romantic picture reduces itself for me but to two definite appearances, that of the more priggish discrimination so far reasserting itself, as to advise me that Monte Pulciano was dirty, even remarkably dirty, and that her being not much else besides, but perched and brown and queer and crooked, and noble withal, 
which is what almost any Tuscan city more easily than not acquits herself of. All the while she may on such occasions figure when one looks off from her to the end of a dark street vista, or catches glimpses through high arcades, some big battered, blistered, overladen, overmastered ship swimming in a violet sea. If I had lost the sense of what we were doing that could at all suffer commemoration at Monte Pulciano, so I sit helpless before the memory of small stewing Torita, which we must somehow have expected to yield under our confidence a view of shy charms, but which didn't yield to my recollection even anything that could fairly be called a breakfast or a dinner. There may have been in the neighbourhood a rumour of Etruscan tombs. The neighbourhood, however, was vast, and that possibility not to be verified in the conditions, save after due refreshment. Then it was doubtless that the question of refreshment so beckoned us by a direct appeal straight across country from Perugia that casting consistency, if not to the winds, since alas there were none, but to the lifeless air, we made the sweltering best of our way, and it took for the distance a terrible time to the grand hotel of that city. This course shines for me in the retrospect with a light even more shameless than that in which my rueful conscience then saw it, since we thus exchanged again at a stroke the tousled bon fille of our vocational Tuscany for the formal figured-out presence of Italy on her good behaviour. We had never seen her conform more to all the proprieties we felt than under this aspect of lavish hospitality to that now apparently quite inveterate swarm of pampered forestieri, English and Americans in especial, who having had Roman palaces and villas deliciously to linger in, break the northward journey when once they decide to take it in the Umbrian paradise. They were goodness knows within their rights, and we profited, as anyone may easily and cannily profit at that time, by the sophistications paraded for them. And I feel, as I pleasantly recover it all, that though we had arrived perhaps at the most poetical of watering places, we had lost our finer clue. The difference from other days was immense. All the span of evolution from the ancient malodorous inn, which somehow didn't matter, to that new type of polyglot caravanserai, which everywhere insists on mattering, mattering even in places where other interests abound so much more than anything else. That clue, the finer, as I say, I would fain at any rate today pick up for its close attachment to another Tuscan city or two, for a felt pull from strange little San Gimignano delle Belle Torre in especial, by which I mean from the memory of a summer Sunday spent there during a stay at Siena. But I have already superabounded, for mere love of my general present rubric the real thickness of experience having a good deal evaporated, so that the tiny town of the many towers hangs before me, not to say rather far behind me, after the manner of an object 
directly meeting the wrong or diminishing lens of one's telescope. It did everything on the occasion of that pilgrimage that it was expected to do, presenting itself more or less in the guise of some rare silvery shell washed up by the sea of time, cracked and battered and dishonoured, with its mutilated marks of adjustment to the extinct type of creature it once harboured, figuring against the sky as maimed gesticulating arms, flourished in protest against fate. If the centuries, however, had pretty well cleaned out, vulgarly speaking, this amazing little fortress town, it wasn't that a mere aching void was bequeathed us. I recognise, as I consult a somewhat faded impression, the whole scene and occasion come back to me as an exhibition on the contrary of a stage rather crowded and agitated, of no small quantity of sound and fury, of concussions, discussions, vociferations, hurryings to and fro, that could scarce have reached a higher pitch in the old days of the siege and the sortie. San Gimignano affected me to a certainty as not dead, I mean, but as inspired with that strange and slightly sinister new life that is now, in case after case, up and down the peninsula, even in presence of the driest and most scattered bones, producing the miracle of resurrection. The effect is often, and I find it strikingly involved in this particular reminiscence, that of the buried hero himself, positively waking up to show you his bones for a fee, and almost capering about in his appeal to your attention. What has become of the soul of San Gimignano, who shall say? But of a genial modern Sunday, it is as if the heroic skeleton, risen from the dust, were in high activity, officious for your entertainment and your detention, clattering and changing plates at the informal friendly inn, personally conducting you to the site of the admirable Santa Fina of Ghirlandaio, as I believe is supposed, in a dim chapel of the Collegiata Church. The poor young saint on a low bed, in a state of ecstatic vision, the angelic apparition is given, accompanied by a few figures and accessories of the most beautiful and touching truth. This image is what has most vividly remained with me of the day I thus so ineffectually recover. The precious ill-set gem or domestic treasure of Santa Fina and then the wonderful drive at eventide back to Siena, the progress through the darkening land that was like a dense fragrant garden, all fireflies and warm emanations and dimly seen motionless festoons, extravagant vines and elegant branches intertwisted for miles, with couples and companies of young country folk almost as fondly united and raising their voices to the night as if superfluously to sing out to you that they were happy, and above all, were Tuscan. On reflection, and to be just, I connect this slightly incongruous loudness that hung about me under the beautiful towers with the really too coarse competition for my favour among the young Vetterini, who lay in wait for my approach, and with an eye to my subsequent departure on my quitting at some unremembered spot the morning train from Siena 
from which point there was then still a drive. That onset was of a fine medieval violence, but the subsiding echoes of it alone must have afterwards borne me company, mingled at the worst with certain reverberations of the animated, rather than concentrated presence, of sundry young sketches and copyists of my own nationality, which element in the picture conveyed beyond anything else, how thoroughly it all was to sit again henceforth in the eye of day. My final vision, perhaps, was of a sacred reliquary, not so much rudely as familiarly and humorously torn open. The note had, with all its references, its own interest, but I never went again. End of section 34